tonight we come to verses 17 through 24. As you're finding your place, listen carefully as I read from another part of the Bible. I want to read from Proverbs 1. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, speaking about those who hear his call but reject him. It's a terrifying passage. But listen to these words. Because I have called and you refuse to listen. Have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Mount Hermon and passage after passage of the Old Testament, we find these kinds of warnings. Those who reject the call of God will be given over to their sin. And not only do we have these warnings, we also have prophecies declaring that this terrible fate would come upon God's own people. The light of the knowledge of God would be taken away from them and given to other nations instead. The Lord Jesus, Israel's Messiah, came and lived among his people. He performed miracles. He taught them. He called them to repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But they would not listen to him. He warned them that if they rejected him, they would be rejecting the father himself. I and the Father are one, he said. He warned them that rejecting him meant rejecting the cornerstone, the one on whom all the blessings of God depend. He explicitly told them, his kinsmen, that the kingdom would be taken away from them because of their rejection. And it would be given to others. Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ, her refusal to listen to wisdom when wisdom came incarnated to her. Israel's absolute rebellion against her God culminated in the abuse and the murder of God's beloved son. And so it should be no surprise to us when we read in Romans 11 that a curse has come upon the people of Israel. This hardening of heart has come upon them. Just as was promised over and over again in the Old Testament, they have now been given over to their unbelief. 
They've been given over to their sins. God has given them over to his judgment. But the glory of Romans 11 is that that is not the whole story. After all, Paul is a Jewish Christian. As he has already been teaching us in this chapter, God always has a remnant. In fact, in the wisdom of God, he has designed history so that as the nations are being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will also be a remnant of Jews who are reached. As he pleases, God creates in these Jews a divine jealousy as they see their own Messiah being embraced by Gentiles. Their eyes are open. They are brought to repentance and they believe on Christ. Just as we were once enemies of God and have now been saved by the blood of Jesus, so God has a full number of elect Jews that He is bringing into His kingdom. The hardening, the curse that has come upon Israel. It's a partial hardening. Even now, in the face of the greatest sin in the history of the world, God is showing compassion. God is showing mercy. And His judgment is not utter judgment. And so the question comes, how should we as Christians now view the Jewish people? And I've already explained in past sermons why this was so practically important for the church in Rome. A mixture of Gentiles and Jews living in a culture with all kinds of people, but where they would regularly interact with unbelieving Jews. So this this is a real practical question for them, and it's good for us. How should we treat Jewish people? Last time we saw that we're to put away all traces of anti-Semitism. But there's more that Paul wants us to learn. So look with me at verses 17 through 24. We're picking up tonight verses 17 through 24. This is the very word of Almighty God. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So Paul calls us in these verses to note something, to behold something. In particular, he calls us to behold 
the kindness of God and the severity of God. Uh, We love thinking about God's kindness, and rightfully so. Uh, We don't love so much thinking about His severity, uh, His terrible judgments against sin. But Paul calls us here to look at both and to look at them together. The kindness of God is seen in what He has done for us Gentiles. We in this room are Gentiles. We we are not biologically children of Abraham. We are not part of the people of Israel with the law and the promises and the prophets. Israel as a nation had a relationship with the true God. Not us. Not our forefathers. Not our ancient ancestors. Our ancient ancestors were lost and blind and separated from any hope, caught up in pagan ways. That's the history of the Gentiles. But God in His kindness has made a way for Gentiles to be taken out of their pagan tree and to be grafted in to this Jewish tree, this tree of His people. God has supernaturally worked by His Spirit to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. And by bringing us to faith, He has brought us into this kingdom that He pictures here as a tree. Uh, We are now part of this tree. We're participants in the promises of God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember, God had promised that He would be their God and they would be His people He promised that He would be with them, that He would bless them. He promised a land flowing with milk and honey, a paradise. And now, by us being grafted into that tree by faith, all of those promises given to Abraham are our promises. We get to say, I am part of this tree. And I receive part of these blessings. By the grace of God, we Gentiles have been brought to faith in the Jewish Messiah, We've been made one with our Lord and everything that He is. And He is a Jew. And by us being united to Him, we participate in all of the blessings that God promised to the Jews. We Gentiles, through faith in Jesus, are part of true Israel. Remember how Paul describes this in another book, Ephesians 2. Uh, Listen to this. Paul says, Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That's a a disparaging comment there by the Jews, right? We are the uncircumcision, right? We are are outside the promises. We are outside of God's people. Uh, We are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's a bleak picture, is it not? That's a bleak picture of our ancestors, our Gentile ancestors. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Paul goes on to say, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in Ephesians 2, it's a different picture, same idea. In Ephesians 2, the picture is of a temple being built. Jesus is the cornerstone. The foundation are the apostles and the prophets. They're the the large foundation stones. And notice, they're all Jews. So this temple is is being built on a Jewish cornerstone. It's being built on a Jewish foundation. But then, each believer is another brick in this eternal temple being built in which God will dwell forever. And so even though the the, the cornerstone is Jewish and the foundation stones are Jewish, most of the first stones on top are Jewish. But then suddenly there are Gentile stones being added, being added, being added. We've now been included as members of the household of God. And we're not second-class citizens in this kingdom. We're given the exact same status, the same access to God, the same blessings as Jewish believers. It turns out that it's having Abraham's faith in your heart, not Abraham's blood in your veins, that actually makes the difference. So in Ephesians 2, the picture is a temple. In Romans 11, the picture is a tree. Same reality. And we are to marvel at God's kindness. And bringing us Gentiles into this kingdom. You understand, God was not obligated to do this. There was no moral requirement upon Him to save us. We we ought to be in hell. And in His mercy, He took promises He had given to one nation. And He brought us into them and saved us. So marvel at the kindness of God. But what about the severity of God? He says, note, behold, the kindness of God and the severity of God. Well, where do we see the severity of God? Well, according to verse 22 of our passage, we are to see the severity of God and how he relates towards those branches that have fallen. How does God relate to those who would have been part of his people? They would have been part of the tree. They were Jews but they didn't believe. So they've been cut off. They're not properly part of the tree. Those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ have no place in this tree. They have no place in the kingdom of God. Yes, they may be physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but if they have rejected the Son of God, they are now broken off branches. They are separated from the life that God gives. They're lying dead on the ground. They're waiting to be gathered up and thrown into the fire. That's the severity of God. But that's not all we're to see, is it? We're also to note the severity of God towards us if we do not continue in God's kindness. Do you see that in verse 22? Do you you see it at the end of the verse? Provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. 
Paul is writing here to Gentiles who profess faith in Jesus Christ. They're part of the church in Rome. These are church-attending, professing believers. They're people like you and me. And Paul warns them and Paul warns us that if we fall into unbelief, if our hearts become hard towards God and we, we begin to reject Him and turn away from Him, we too will be cut off. And this isn't losing our salvation. It's having your true color shown. Elect people don't become unelect. Justified people don't become unjustified. But there is a real saving faith that comes from God, and there is a false man-made faith that doesn't save. And one of the key marks, one of the chief characteristics of a false faith is that it doesn't last. It doesn't persevere. When the sun comes out and begins to shine, it's, it's warm, hot rays, and the temperature rises, the faith begins to shrivel up and die. It is those who persevere in faith. It is those who endure in faith, who are truly saved, who are part of this tree. It is those who hold fast to Christ, right? You stand fast by faith. It is those who hold fast to Christ and continue in God's kindness, continue resting in His grace. They are truly His. And Mount Hermon see what God was willing to do, even to His own chosen people, the Jews. They were His precious people. But if they would not believe, they were cut off. And Paul says, dear Gentile, do you think God will do anything less to you if you fall into unbelief? We too can become broken off branches. We can prove ourselves to be spiritually dead, lying on the ground, waiting for the fire. And I pray that that's none of us in this room, that God will keep us believing Now, in light of all this, in light of seeing the kindness of God and seeing the severity of God, we have the answer to our question. Remember our question. How should we, as Christians, relate to the Jewish people who are now under a partial hardening? The answer comes in a command. We saw it last week. We'll see it again. We see it in verse 18, and we see it again in different words in verse 20. So the first words of verse 18... Do not be arrogant towards the branches. So that's, that's clear, right? The, the command is given to us in the negative. We are not to be arrogant towards those who are cut off because of unbelief. When you see an unbelieving Jew, you are seeing a cut off branch. Someone who would properly have belonged to that olive tree, but they did not believe. And so they've been excluded. And he says, when you see that unbelieving Jew, don't you be arrogant. Look at the last words of verse 20. Verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. In other words, rather than pride and arrogance, because we've been saved, while most Jews are still lost, instead of patting ourselves on the back, instead of even saying, God cut you off so that I could be grafted in. No. He says we're to stand in fear. What is the wrong reaction to us being saved and most Jews being lost? 
pride. That's the wrong reaction. What is the right reaction to us being saved and most Jews being lost? Fear. Because if we fall into unbelief, we too will be given over to our sin and lost forever. In other words, the Jewish people are a parable for us of what happens if we do not believe. They are a living, walking, breathing parable of the fate of unbelief. So the call of this passage is a call to put away all pride and to stand in humility before God. It's a call to put away all human boasting when it comes to our salvation and to see how utterly dependent we are on the grace and mercy of God. Rather than patting ourselves on the back for being saved, we should be down on our faces, thanking God and asking that He would sustain our faith to the end. And then we should look with pity And we should look with compassion on those around us who are lost. Now, our passage gives us at least three reasons for this command, right? Why should we be humble? Why should we not pridefully disdain the Jews in their unbelief? Well, hear these three reasons. Let them have their sanctifying effect on your life. So here they are. First reason not to be arrogant. It is not you who support the root. The root supports you. That's verse 18. Okay? And the point is this. How can you look down upon the Jewish people when in fact it's ancient Jewish people who are holding you up? Right? Uh, I think it's even clearer when you remember the picture of the temple from Ephesians chapter 2. The foundation that we are standing on is a foundation of Jewish apostles and prophets. Uh, This very moment, we are building up our faith. We are growing as Christians by reading the Spirit-inspired letter of Romans written for us by a Jewish man. We are being supported. We are being upheld. We are being sustained in our faith through the work that God has done in the lives of Jews. And dare we forget that our Savior, the cornerstone, is a Jew. Uh, One writer says it this way. Why should we not be arrogant towards the Jews? Because the Jewish root, the Jewish fathers, the Jewish scripture, the Jewish promises, the Jewish history, the Jewish Messiah supports you and not the other way around. Being a Christian means becoming a true Jew. Being a Christian means finding your ancestry in Abraham and his offspring. Being a Christian means believing and loving the Jewish Torah, the writings, the prophets. Being a Christian means being grafted into the Jewish covenant. Proud anti-Semitism proves we do not know who we are. Or it proves that we are not who we say we are. Do you see how foolish anti-Semitism is when the Bible says you're now part of the Jewish tree? You're now a part of true Israel. So that's one reason not to be arrogant. The second reason that Paul gives is this. Um, It is faith that keeps you connected to this tree, and pride destroys faith. Okay? 
So here's your reason not to be arrogant. Faith keeps you connected to this tree, the tree of blessings, the tree of promise, the tree of the kingdom of God, the tree of salvation and heaven and eternal life. This is a life-giving tree. This is a saving tree. And you are held on to that tree. You've been, you're not naturally a part of it. You've been taken from over here and you've been grafted on and the tape that's holding you on, that's connecting you, it's faith. And pride destroys faith. It loosens the tape. It begins to make you liable to fall and to be detached from the tree. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. Uh, Verses 19 and 20. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in, right? Israel's, Israel, rejected the, uh, G, Israel rejected Jesus. Israel rejected the gospel so that it would go out to the world so that I would be grafted in. So real Jews rejected the gospel so that it would come to me and I would be grafted in. Paul says, that is true. That is how it worked. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud. Do you hear the connection? You stand fast through faith, so do not become proud. Pride is the enemy of faith. So the all-important quality that determines whether or not you're a part of this tree is this. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? And the application Paul makes is then do not become proud Because pride is the antithesis to faith. Faith is a humble looking to God for salvation. Faith is coming to Jesus with nothing in our hands. Faith is coming to Jesus as a little child. Looking to Him to provide everything that we need. Pride is to faith like oil is to water. They do not mix And if faith is the glue that connects us to the people of God, pride is the axe that cuts us away. It hardens our hearts. It leads us into unbelief. We see it it over and over again in the Bible. Pride is the mortal enemy of our souls. Look again at verses 23, 24. Verses 23 and 24. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So so we Gentiles are from a completely different tree, a wild tree, a pagan tree, an unbelieving tree. We do not belong properly to that cultivated tree. You know what cultivated means. It means God's been paying special attention to it. He's been taking care of it. He's been guiding its growth. He's been making sure that it's properly watered and has all the nourishment it needs. And God has taken us from our wild tree. He's grafted us into this special tree, his kingdom, his family. And he did this by giving us faith. If God is willing to take us, the unnatural branches, and graft us into this tree, how willing is he to take those that were natural branches and fell off and bring them back in? Certainly he's willing. Certainly he is able. The point, and we've seen it over and over again, is that there will be Jews who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
that they will not continue in their unbelief, in their hardness of heart. Yes, they were hardened of heart. They did not believe. They were broken off. But then they come to faith, and, and God brings them, and he, he grafts them right back in. So he says, don't be arrogant towards Jewish people, because just as you are saved through faith, they too may be brought by faith back into the tree. I hope you see in this passage the connection between continuing in God's kindness, standing fast in faith, and being humble. Because these three things go intimately together. It is through God's kindness that our faith is sustained and we remain humble. And it is through our humility that our hearts remain believing on Christ and we have God's kindness. Humility, believing on Christ, the kindness of God, these things go together. Here's the takeaway. Make sure that you maintain a heart of humility and don't let your heart become hardened through pride. Mount Hermon, let's examine ourselves. Uh, We're talking about the most important subject in the world. We're talking about our eternal destinies. Uh, Using this picture of branches that are in the tree and cut off, that's one way of talking about it. But what we're describing here is heaven and hell. Life and death. Are you living with humble faith? Are you living your life dependent upon God alone? Or would you say that prideful unbelief is in your heart? Are you resting in Jesus with faith like a child? Knowing that every blessing you have comes only from Him. Or do you tend to look at others as if they are less than you? As if you are somehow greater than they are because of your faith or your moral goodness or your accomplishments. We should pray every day that God would save us from pride. And then finally, quickly, the third reason, the third argument Paul gives that we're to put away pride is that if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare us. And we already read that. That's verses 21 and 22. Argument's very simple. If God was willing to cut off the natural branches, the physical descendants of Abraham, because they did not believe, don't you know for sure he will cut us off if we fall into unbelief. Now, Since pride has been set before us yet again as such a great threat to our souls, I want to close by reminding you of some practical ways to walk with the Spirit in killing pride in your heart. I don't want this all to be up here. Theoretical, abstract, theological, doctrinal. I want this to come into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and and practically living this out. Out uh, The Spirit, we, taught, we were told in Romans 8, the Spirit is working to make us holy. How do we join with the Spirit and what He is doing to make us humble? So here we go. First, see and understand that the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, is working to give you illumination. Illumination. In other words, the Spirit is working even tonight to give you a proper understanding concerning pride. and Therefore, you should join with the Spirit by seeking to be illuminated. As you sit in these these Sunday services, you should sit with with attention. I want to hear what God has to tell me. The Holy Spirit is doing a work to open my mind. Spirit, open my mind to understand. And, And what is the Spirit saying about pride? He's saying, watch out. Beware. 
Have your radar on. As soon as you see pride beginning to appear in your life, get ready to run from it, to attack it, to kill it. Second, the Spirit is working to cultivate discernment in you. The Spirit is working to help you be aware of pride in your own life, to be able to recognize it when it does pop up. Let me ask you this. Are you seeking this discernment? Are you developing this discernment in your life? You should pray for this. You should go to God in prayer and ask Him, will you give me a daily awareness of the condition of my own heart? Would you make me sensitive to the words I say? And as soon as there's a little tinge of, look at me, in the words I say, make me aware, Father. Let me be convicted about that. As soon as in my attitude, I'm thinking selfishly about, well, why aren't they honoring me? Why aren't they giving me what I think I deserve? As soon as my mind goes there, Father, let, let my radar beep. Help me to know I'm going there so that I can put an end to it quickly. We should be praying for that awareness. And as soon as any, any trace of pride shows up in our thoughts, and our actions, and our words, and our attitudes, we ought to immediately take action. We want to pummel pride. We want to, we want to stomp it in the dirt. But you can't do that if you're not discerning. You can't, you can't kill an enemy if you don't know what's there. And so pray for the Spirit to give you that discernment. Christians ought to be the most conscientious people when it comes to an awareness of our own hearts. Uh, one trace of pride, one, one expression of pride, is that we're so much more aware of the sins of others than our own. <laughs> pride wants to blind you to your own sin. Pride wants to make you desensitize so that you're not even aware when you're being arrogant. You should pray that God would give you that awareness. Third, the Spirit by the Word seeks to convict you of present pride and to bring you to repentance. So join the Spirit in killing pride by being open to conviction and being eager to repent. When that moment comes and the Spirit does bring to your attention that you're being arrogant, you're being prideful, you're being self-centered, you, you don't resist that conviction. Actively seek to feel in the depths of your soul the vileness of pride. Pray that it would be in your nose the stench that it is in God's nose. And do this regularly. Ask the Spirit to show you pride in your life. Examine yourself by the Word. Identify expressions of pride in your life. Feel afresh how awful and heinous and abhorrent pride is. And then out of that dust, turn afresh from pride. Repent of it. Resolve against it. Be amazed that Christ would love worms like us who think we're the best worm. Right? By the way, this should be the regular experience of Christians. Like, I hope I'm not preaching anything that's strange to you. I hope this is your daily experience of having to go to God and repent of these things. I was arrogant again, self-centered again. Father, forgive me. Help me be resolved anew. Make me more alert. Finally, the Spirit, by the Word, is seeking to cultivate humility in you. Friends, the best defense against pride is a good offense. How do you attack pride? By cultivating its opposite. By seeking to actively cultivate humility. And not just in your mind, not just in your heart, but with action. 
taking intentional steps to cultivate humility in your life. I'll give you a few examples. Receive discipline well. When you sense that God is putting you through a trial or a difficult circumstance in order to humble you, learn the lesson of that trial. Don't make him send another one and another one and another one. Learn the lesson of the trial. Trials are wonderful gifts from God. They don't feel wonderful, but trials are wonderful gifts from God. And they're always intended, among other things, they're always intended to humble us. But they only do us good if we don't fight against them. They only do us good if we learn the lesson of the trial. Parents, you ever give your child a spanking for something and then like 10 minutes later they're doing it again? And you got to give them another spanking. They didn't learn the lesson. Sometimes we keep experiencing trial after trial after trial in our life because we just won't learn our lesson. To humble ourselves. To take God and His Word seriously. To, to, to be reverent towards Him. To love Him and obey Him. We should make the most of our seasons of discipline. Humbling ourselves before God, confessing our sins, acknowledging the lessons that we're learning. Another way to cultivate humility, receive correction well. Uh, When a brother or sister in Christ comes to you and they correct you, don't immediately become defensive. It's hard to do, isn't it? (laughs) It's hard to do. Uh, We have to humble ourselves to consider the correction. And to learn from it if we can. Um, There's an old saying that says, swallowing your pride seldom leads to indigestion. It's the opposite. Swallowing our pride can often help us to learn about parts of our lives that can be changed. So that we can be better servants of God and a blessing to others. When others come to us to correct us. And by the way, they may be in this church or outside of this church. They may be believers. They may be unbelievers. We should humble ourselves, we should not be defensive, and we should sift what they say and take every part that is good and humble ourselves to apply it. Uh, Submit to authority well. We can actively cultivate humility by submitting to authority, Uh, especially when we sense that we want something (laughs) that the authority says no to. Or we don't want to do something and the authority says, do it. We, we cultivate humility by crossing our will in order to submit to authority. And when we sense that there is something in us that wants to rebel, when we sense that there is something in us that wants to react negatively to that authority, that's the moment when, when we have our opportunity for self-denial, for self-control, for squashing pride. Rather than following pride. If you're not actively submitting to godly authorities in your life. Honoring those authorities. You're missing out on a major gift that God has given you. To help you kill pride. Actively cultivate humility by regularly remembering what you deserve. By regularly remembering what you deserve. It's really hard to complain or be arrogant or have self-pity. When you remember that you deserve hell and you're going to heaven. (laughs) You're going 
to heaven. And when you remember that, when you, when you recall that endless suffering is your just deserts, and you're going to walk on streets of gold and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in a way you never have before instead. When you keep gospel eternal realities in your mind, it humbles us. When you keep in mind the cost of your salvation, that the Son of God, God Himself, bore His own wrath for you. Frankly, if for one moment we could glimpse the hell that we deserve, or we could glimpse the heaven that we are receiving, or we could better understand the great price that Christ paid to make it so, it would utterly demolish pride in us. We can't see it with the eyes in our heads, but we can see it with the eyes of faith as the Spirit brings our attention to the Word of God. And so try and keep in mind regularly who you are as a Christian, what you deserve, what you've been given, where you're going, and at what cost. So Mount Hermon, let us heed the warning of verses 17 through 24. Let us not be arrogant Let us not entertain pride in our souls towards others. And let us do this trusting in Christ as our great Savior, living in His love and taking our every concern to Him in prayer. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together.